My name is Michael. I'm a recovering marijuana addict. I say recovering because uh, I find that this disease is not something that I, even though I haven't used for over 3,800 days, I'm still a marijuana addict. If I let my thinking go, uh, my behavior can my behaviors can change, my life can become unmanageable, and it'll be just as worse and just as bad as what it was when I was using. You know, when I first came into recovery, I was living in a tent in my drug dealer's backyard. I didn't do any other drugs. Like, I mean, yeah, okay, I snorted a few lines, I dropped a few hits of acid, but I was mainly a pothead. If you gave me a choice to do anything, marijuana was what I wanted in my life. And you know what? I wanted it so much that every decision I made in my life was centered around marijuana. Who I hung out with, um, who I associated with, the jobs I would take or not take because of it, um, where I would and wouldn't go was all uh, centered around my marijuana use. You know, and uh, it's funny because by the end of it, like I said, I was living in a tent in my drug dealer's backyard with my pet rabbit. That's pretty bad, you know, when you have to be take your rabbit down with you. Um, it's funny that I say that because, you know what, I heard in a meeting in L.A. In LA once someone say that, being a marijuana addict is like being kicked to death by a rabbit. And what I, I get from that is that, you know what, it's not going to take you down fast. You're not going to really OD for marijuana. But like I said, all my choices in life slowly led me to that backyard and, and to my drug dealer's place. Um, and, and the reason I chose that place is because it served me. I knew that, you know what, I knew that when he came home from work, he was going to spark a joint with me. That's why I chose to stay in that backyard, um, you know, but it didn't start like that. You know, that's the truth of it. Um, and I came from a fairly normal family. Uh, I wasn't beaten. I wasn't sexually molested. Um, but you know what? If you asked anyone in our family how I was, I would have said, we would have said, fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And, I, and I've come to realize that that basically means fucked up, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. I was, I never learned how to properly deal with my emotions. And as a result, you know, when I finally smoked my first joint, wow, did I feel good. I laughed. I rolled down the hill. I, I felt, I felt, I felt alive for the first time in my, in my teenage years, you know. And, uh, and I wanted to get high again. Every chance I, I, I could, I wanted to get high. And I started hanging out with the people who knew, I knew had weed or who could get me weed, who would sell me weed. Those were my friends, those who I chose to hang out with. And it became, it became very much of who I was. You know, um, I'll give you an example. I, I had a, a high school sweetheart. She didn't smoke pot, um, and she didn't really like me smoking pot. I remember once I went out on a date with her on a Friday night. I got her home by 10.15, because then I could meet up with my buddies and smoke pot because that's what I really wanted. You know, all the decisions I started making were based around pot. You know, uh, you know, I went away to college, and, 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 and that's who I was. I remember in, in college I did a social, uh, social studies uh, course, and, and on it, my subject for the, for, the, for the project I did was recreational drug use. And, uh, you know, I knew a lot about it. You know, I got a, I think I got a C, surprisingly, but it's, it's funny that I chose to do that, you know. Um, eventually, 
you know, I got married. I, I, I graduated from college. I came back. I found a girl. Uh, fell in love. And, and that relationship lasted for a few years. But you know what? I would lie to her. You know, she'd be like, you didn't buy any weed, did you? I'd be like, no, it's, it's hidden away. Of course I, you know. And, uh, you know, you can only hide the lies for so long. And eventually she left me. And that's when my, my pot smoking really took off. I started a job working uh, for a video company. We did rock videos. And it was a perfect job for me because, you know, we were shooting rock videos in the day. There's a drug dealer on set. And then I could hang out there all night and smoke pot and drink beer after. It was the perfect job for me. Was it the best paying job I could have got? No, but it was the perfect job that served my purpose. Um, you know, uh, I got into a few relationships, but, you know, I was maintaining a relationship because I was incapable of being honest with my emotions. And I was inco- incapable of, 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 ex- of explaining to the people I cared about how I actually felt. Um, I remember my ex-wife, she used to call me the chameleon because I would be exactly who I thought you wanted me to be. And that's how I would act. And it was very, very tough and very tiresome to try and always be someone else. You know, and uh, I could only maintain that for so long and eventually those relationships would end. Um, and, And I was incapable of having a relationship. Um, you know, even after my marriage, I was in a few relationships and all of them ended because, because of me, you know, because of my inability to actually communicate effectively with these people I said I loved, you know, it came to a part in my life where, um, I was very disjointed. Actually, it was just after 9-11, so it was early this century and I wasn't making any money, um, you know, the, I was in video communications and no one was communicating. I didn't have money. I didn't even have money for rent. And uh, my landlady came to me and, and said that, you know, I was going to say, you know, I, I got to move out. And she said, well, actually, it, it, it works out that my, her and her husband were separating and, and he was going to move into the basement. So they gave me three months to get out. And it was at that point I decided I, you know, I just, I just wanted to run away from the world and everything that was happening. You know, and I decided I, I would literally walk away from my problems, or so I thought. And uh, I decided I'd go for a walk. And I sold everything I owned. And I decided I would go for a walk from Toronto out to the east coast of Canada, out to Labrador and back. And, uh, you know what, for eight months I was on the road walking. Um, you know what, it was an amazing experience. I'm not going to lie about it. It changed me fundamentally. Um, but as an addict, you can't run away from your problems. You can't walk away from your problems because in reality, the problem in my life was me, you know, and um, I walked out to the edge of the world literally and I walked back. It was uh, almost 7,000 kilometers, so it's that about 3,500 miles, maybe 4,000 miles, and it took me 10 months to walk. And I got back and I didn't really learn much, you know, the only thing I think I really learned is to trust my higher power. Um, it's funny because when you're walking you know, 40 kilometers or 25 miles every day, your feet get pretty sore. And the only thing that would stop the pain in my feet was singing Amazing Grace. It was the only thing that actually stopped the pain. And I learned to trust in my higher power that he was guiding me on my journey. But the problem is I was still an active addict. 
I got back to Toronto and, and you know, being full of myself, I got into another dis- a destructive relationship and took a hostage and, and, and got into a relationship and that blew up over the course of the next year and a bit. And, you know, me being the, the, the wise addict, I figured I'd walk away from my problems again. And uh, in the spring of 2005, I decided I would go for a walk and I walked from Toronto out towards Vancouver. Uh, I don't know if you guys know much about Northern Ontario, but it's one of the most isolated and loneliest places on this continent that actually has roads going through it. And uh, I think I went through every emotion, crying, fear. When you see bear tracks on the side of the road and you're you know, 40 kilometers from a town, it can be pretty scary. Um, and, you know, I finally, I just kept walking and walking. Finally, I got to Vancouver after six months and you know I thought I was the bee's knees like I'd walked across the continent and holy crap problem is I was still an addict I was still I still needed to smoke pot I still anytime anyone offered me pot I would smoke it I don't think I ever turned down a joint in my life you know that's the truth of it um, and I got back from Vancouver uh, I took a train back to Toronto, and, and a buddy of mine said he could I could stay on his sailboat on in the, in the, on the marina on the Toronto Islands, and you know I, I I thought it would be a great time for me to sit and write a memoir and and, and 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 wax pedantically about my existence. And the truth is, I just found a dealer on the island, smoked a lot of pot, and ran up a bar tab at the marina. And eventually, after the summer end, I got kicked out, and that's when I ended up living in my tent in my drug dealer's backyard. You know, and uh, you know, I went to that first meeting, and it was an it was a, an AA meeting, it wasn't an MA meeting. And uh, I'm very lucky that I have a father who's a recovering alcoholic, and uh, he's got 35 years in recovery now, so I guess he had 25 then. I knew these 12 steps worked, but I didn't know how they worked. You know, and uh, I came into the program, I grabbed my first desire chip, and I went to a bunch of meetings, I listened. But the problem is that I thought I still knew everything. And I thought I could try and do these steps my way. You know, and the reality is, is after about eight or nine months, I relapsed on pot, and I started smoking pot again. And, uh, you know, I, I heard, when I was going to those A meetings, all I heard was don't drink. And, and for an addict, you can always find a way to get around the qualifications. Well, he didn't say anything about weed, so I started smoking weed. And I tell you, I became more insane smoking just weed than than than, than drinking and doing weed. Um, I remember standing on the train platform and thinking I gotta just I was gonna jump in front of a train and just kill myself. The reality is I didn't want to really kill myself. I just wanted the pain of life to stop. And I didn't know how to do that. And and I thought about taking the way out, you know. Um, I don't think I could have done it. I know it would have killed my mom, and I, and I love her too much to do that to her. You know, and that's when I decided I would, I'd start going back to meetings. And I went back to a few AA meetings and shared about my marijuana addiction. And one old-timer said, well, buddy, I feel for you, but this is AA. This is, we deal with alcohol, you know, I don't know what your problem is, and I can't relate to it, and you know what, it was a few weeks after that, that a friend of mine, uh, 
and a friend of mine told me about Marijuana Anonymous. And I went to my first MA meeting in Toronto. And at that meeting, I heard people share what it was like to be a pothead. What it was like to, you know, I, you know in, the, in the rooms of AA, I heard about jails, death, and institutions. And that wasn't the case ever with me, you know. In MA, I heard one guy say once, it's not jails, death, and institutions. It's basement, bong, and masturbation. And, and I laughed and I related to it. You know, it's, it's that silent scream of addiction. I'm not out in the alleyway turning tricks. I'm not getting into fights in bars. What I am doing is I'm isolating in my basement doing nothing with my life. And that's where, mar- my, where my marijuana addiction took me. And when I found, out the rooms, found the rooms of Marijuana Anonymous, I started attending meetings, uh, going to as many as I could, three, four a week. That's all there was in Toronto at the time. And uh, I attended many meetings with my friend Tony, and we decided we would start our own group up in the east end of Toronto, uh, the, the old Thursday night main hope group, which no longer exists. Um, and you know what? I, I dedicated myself to my recovery. I find it's very important for, for me to put my life into my recovery, not my recovery into my life. And what I mean by that is that my recovery is the most important thing. I could tell you any Thursday night where I was going to be. I was going to be at my home group. And I think in the seven years I was there, I missed maybe three of them, and I was out of the country every time. You know? And that's, that's, what, that's the dedication it takes to get recovery, is to put your recovery first. You know? and, and I have a new meeting. I moved outside of Toronto now, um, a bit west of Toronto, about 100 kilometers or 60 miles for those who can't do the conversion. And I have the Simcoe group of Marijuana Anonymous, which is my home group now. And, and you know what? Every Thursday night, that's where I am. That's where I spend my Thursdays. And someone says, Mike, hey, you want to go to a concert on a Thursday? I'm like, sorry, I have a commitment. And that's why I have to put my recovery first, you know. And I did that. I got very active in recovery. It's very important, you know, once you stop smoking pot and, and start working these steps, is to become active in the service of recovery because by being active in recovery, you hear the message on a daily basis and you get to share the message of recovery. I got active in my group that we started. Um, I got active in the Toronto District, District 19, and, and I actually helped form, um, form the district. And I was the first delegate from Toronto, from District 19, to go to World Service. I became, the, I be, I became uh, a trustee. Um, you know, and I continue to work this program, and I continue to do uh, I volunteer my time in recovery. And it's very important for me to do that, as well as work with newcomers. You know, um, recovery. It's funny, you know, because I know too many people who try to think this program. I read a quote. One of my favorite quotes comes from the story. My best thinking got me here, and. Uh, if you're in the second edition, it's on page 176. I'm not sure where it is in the third edition. But here it is. It says, I was told you can't think yourself into rightful actions. You have to act your way into rightful thinking. And the appropriate actions are working that step. And that's what this program takes, you know. Just coming to meetings and, and, and it is not enough. You have to get active in your recovery, you know. It's just like someone who 
who sits there and watches YouTube's videos about how to play guitar and never actually plays guitar, well, they know a lot about playing guitar, but they don't know actually how to play guitar because they've never actually played guitar. And it's the same thing about recovery. You can sit here and read the Life with Hope book all you want. Go to 100 meetings. Go to 90 meetings in 90 days. I highly recommend you do that. But that alone won't get you sober and keep you sober. You know, or keep you, I like actually saying the word lucid more than sober when it comes to my marijuana addiction because my, by the end of my marijuana addiction, I remember walking down the street once and not being able to spell the word what in my head. I was like, W, uh, W, and I couldn't think of the next letter, how to spell the word what in my head. That's how foggy I was. You know, since I've got out of recovery, I've wrote two books. I've recorded three CDs. I've, 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 I've directed and produced a documentary. I've done all the things I thought about, you know. Before everything was just a pipe dream and it went up in smoke. Now I'm actually living my dreams as a result of this program, you know. If you're early in recovery, um, you know, just keep doing it. Just don't smoke today, you know. If you're in your first few weeks of recovery, you know what? It's going to be tough. You're going to, you are actually at this point where you're detoxing from marijuana. And I remember those first two weeks of my recovery where I had lucid dreams. Um, I couldn't, my emotions were going up and down. I couldn't remember anything. I had to write everything down. And even in the first months of recovery, those emotions kept going up and down. I remember one day uh, walking down my street and I saw a mother and a child in a carriage walking by and a little infant and I literally started weeping and crying like I never had before in my life because it was the most beautiful thing. I'd always wanted to be a parent and I never was and I saw this mother and child and I was weeping and I kept walking down the street and I get down to the bottom of my street and this guy in a BMW turns the corner and almost hits me and comes to a screeching halt and I literally start kicking his car threatening to kill him. This is within a minute of me crying and threatening to kill this guy. You know what? In early recovery, I have to, I'm learning to deal with my emotions again without the marijuana to dull the feelings. And you know what? In early recovery, these feelings come back and they can be very strong. They were for me. And I had to just trust, you know what? Where can I go? I can go to my meetings. I can phone my sponsor. And if I don't know, you know, it's like the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. I'm a marijuana addict. And I brought myself to this bottom. I can't change that. Give me the courage to change the things I can, which is, you know what? Go to meetings. Work these steps. Get a sponsor. Get active. And the third part, the wisdom to know the difference. And I don't know if it falls into category one or category two. I reach out and I call my sponsor. You know? And I have a, I have, I have a sponsor in AA. I have a sponsor in MA. And I find it's important um, to, to be able to reach out to anyone or, or several people. I have a, a five or six people I can call at any time to reach out and talk. Because before, what I would have done is I would have isolated in my basement and smoked a joint and tried to smoke my life away and smoke these feelings of discomfort away. I've learned that I can't do that anymore. I have to face my life as it actually is and learn to do it without marijuana. You know, for me, when I was an active marijuana addict, I used to get this feeling in the middle of my chest almost like a burning sensation in the middle of my chest. And the only thing that could alleviate that feeling was smoking a joint. I don't know if you guys relate to that. You know, here I am, 
over 10 years in the recovery. And I will tell you, at times, I still get that feeling in my chest, that uncomfortableness, that unmanageability we talked about in this program. But the beauty of this program is it has taught me how to deal with that unmanageability without smoking. It's taught me that I can face my problems with the help of, of this fellowship, these steps, and, and, and my sponsors and friends. You know, and that's what this program really has done for me. Let me live a life worth living. You know what? I'll put it to you this way. You know what? You can do these 12 steps and make these 12 steps a part of your life. Or you can do what I try to do, which is the 15 million step program and walk across the country. I know that doesn't work. You know what? 12 steps are a lot easier. I want to thank you for letting me share today. And uh, God bless you all.